This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer, I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and you have seen Kashana Cauley's byline in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic, and Esquire, and BuzzFeed. We're going to talk about that BuzzFeed piece later in the show. But also her first novel, The Survivalist, is just coming out. And listen, Percival Everett loves this book. Samantha Irby loves this book. Gary Steingart, remember our country friends? It was a BNN book club pick. Gary Steingart loves this book. Tom Parada. And yeah, this other guy called Trevor Noah, you might know his name. He also loves The Survivalist. Kashana, I'm so happy to meet you finally. This is so weird. We're doing this over Zoom still. But would you introduce The Survivalist to listeners, please? Sure. Um, the Survivalists is a novel about four Brooklyn-based survivalists, people who live right in the middle of the city and are yet preparing for doomsday as if they lived in the country someplace. Um, um, the main character is Aretha. She's a increasingly sad lawyer. She's not feeling very fulfilled by her work. And she meets Aaron, who is a coffee seller. He runs his own business called Tactical Coffee right out of a Brooklyn brownstone that everybody who is involved with the business lives in. Uh, they fall in love and she moves in and then she meets Aaron's roommates, Brittany and James. Brittany comes from a long line of Second Amendment touting, gun-owning Massachusetts natives who are Black. Every, everybody in this book is Black except for James, um, the other person who's part of the business and lives in the brownstone. He's a plagiarist who was fired from the Washington Post. He used to cover climate change. He was very sad that he doesn't get to explain to everyone why Miami was becoming palm tree soup, as he puts it. But the only people who were willing to hire him were the people of Tactical Coffee who needed a body man. Unfortunately, he's often drunk. Yeah. And I love these characters. All right. So if you've read The Sellout by Paul Beatty, if you've read The Changeling by Victor Laval, if you've read The Other Black Girl by Zakiah Harris, which was also a BNM book club pick. The survivalists in your character sort of fit very firmly in this world where you're walking this knife's edge kind of of very funny dark comedy and bleak. I there were a couple of moments where I caught myself laughing and I was like, oh, my eyes got really big. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And we're gonna be spoiler-free in this conversation, but at the same time, there's a lot that happens. But because I was so keyed in on the characters, especially Aretha and Aaron, I mean, Brittany and James have their place, but Aretha and Aaron sort of got me right away. So when you started writing The Survivalists, how did the book start for you? Did you start with the characters? Did you start with this idea? Because you're covering a lot of ground in a very tightly written book. I started with Aretha. I mm -hmm. used to be an increasingly sad lawyer myself. I practiced antitrust and it was not quite mm -hmm. the world's best profession for me. I wanted to work with that. I wanted to give her life at the firm, but I wanted her to be preparing for something bigger than your average Brooklynite really seems to. There were a couple of news stories right around the time I started the book. One guy was stockpiling guns about a block from where I lived in Prospect Heights above a ramen shop. And one pair of people in their 20s was stockpiling guns on knife between 5th and 6th in the village and, you know, the estates. No crime in either of these neighborhoods. No real emergencies. Um, nothing you could solve by guns anyway. I mean, hurricanes are not, not things you can shoot. And so between that and my own background, my parents are, I don't know that they would describe themselves as survivalists, but they have their stash of guns and they have their cabinet full of food just in case of emergency. 
all of these things combined into something I just really wanted to do. I don't think survivalists are often covered from a Black perspective or from an urban one. I wanted to do something different. And I had all these life experiences and interests. And then I started writing from there. And you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Okay. So when did you get to New York slash Brooklyn? For law school. Okay. Okay, because one of the things I appreciate about Aretha, too, is that she is an outsider to New York. She's really wrestling with this, how do you make a life kind of thing. She's got this very good friend from college, but you have a really tight cast of characters, which you're covering a lot of ground with basically four people, and then let's say Nia, and then there's a colleague. How did you know that it was going to be this tight? I have spent a long time at this point working in television. Okay. When you pitch out a show, it is originally that tight. At the beginning of a show, you have four to six main characters. You can expand as your show goes on, but you start with that four to six to kind of ground the viewer in a tight cast of characters where you don't get lost as to who everyone is. I really liked that as a framework and decided to adopt that so that we knew where the focus was. Okay, because this book moves. I read it in a single sitting, and this book moves and it was great because you can really see a very clear arc but did you sit down and plot out the major moments or did you just sit down and say okay i think i know where i need to go and i know what i want to cover i actually did plot it out specifically as a three-act structure i also cribbed that from television and i just like that as a framework because one of the things i realized too as i was reading is that i had a great deal of sympathy for Brittany. She's big on rules. She had house rules. She's also the bookkeeper for the coffee company. And she's very intense. And I think I would probably find her very scary in real life. She has her reasons for being the way she is. And I really appreciated the fact that you never lost sight of her as a person, that she never became just a trope or an idea for moving the story along. And James and the plagiarism thing. (laughs) Sorry. I don't think James realizes how much comic relief he is, but the plagiarism stuff and the constantly being drunk. So here we are. Aretha is sort of standing on the sidelines. We've got this great dude. I mean, Aaron really is a great dude. He has his reasons for being there. And yet his connection to Brittany and his connection to James... Aretha keeps talking to herself like, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all fine. Everything's fine. I'm just tired of being alone. And I thought that was really powerful, this idea that loneliness was enough. I mean, yeah, Aaron's a great guy, but she moves in with him in like 20 minutes. (laughs) New York real estate story. I know someone who moved from Brooklyn to Queens because they were tired of taking a cab to see their person. (laughs) Oh, I see. Right. No, I mean, we all have stories like this. I mean, New York real estate, whether it's Brooklyn or Queens or the city, people do stuff. People do stuff. And Aretha is one of those people who does a thing and moves in to the brownstone. <laughs> and that may have been the moment where I was like, please keep your apartment. Please keep your apartment. <laughs> but here's the thing. Real estate represents so much for so many people. And I want to talk about this brownstone for a second. The brownstone, and we're going to not talk about the thing that happens that pushes everything to a breaking point, um, because I thought that was totally inspired (laughs) and very, very smart. But I don't want people to not be able to experience that themselves. But you essentially put everyone in a locked room. 
Mm-hmm. It's a locked room. Everyone is, and Aaron somehow keeps going off on his trips. He's just like, yeah, I've got to go talk to coffee growers here, and I've got to go talk to coffee growers there. Are you a coffee person? Is that where all of that came from, or is that just fun to write into the book? Oh, I'm obsessed. In the maybe around 2010, some friends of mine were we were all reading this magazine called Imbibe. It was like I think a professional food and beverage industry magazine, and we were just people who wanted coffee to taste better. There were a few third wave coffee shops in my neighborhood. I was living in the East Village at the time. And it was all of a sudden like, you don't have to put hazelnut syrup in coffee. This is so exciting. And so all we did was hunt down coffee, me and my friends and my husband. And we drove around North Carolina at one point, hunted down the counterculture roastery, went, oh, can we try stuff? And they're like, oh, we don't actually sell. Are you guys professionals? No, no, no. We just like, you know, tracking down coffee people and being weirdos. I love coffee. I've gotten it shipped from all sorts of states. I've ne- I haven't taken a trip in 15 years without bringing home a bag from someplace. I'm obsessed. Do you have a favorite coffee, like a favorite place that coffee comes from? I don't mean like a retailer, but like Dominican coffee, French coffee. Like, do you have a, like a coffee that you turn to? No, I have a set of notes. I like chocolate notes. I like heavy berries. I like the syrupy ones. If they describe like a candy description, heavy. (laughs) Because the idea of having a roaster, I mean, also, you know, I live in one of those tiny New York apartments and I'm like, yeah, a roaster. Okay, that's not a small piece of equipment. <laughs> the coffee stuff, obviously, is a joy to read. And clearly, he is making his own way in the world. And you get to write about class in a way through him and through Aretha because she's really ambitious and yet stuff doesn't go quite the way she would have hoped at the law firm. And I love seeing the juxtaposition of the two of them. And here's Aaron just being sort of his very chill self. He can talk to anyone. He just, he knows what he wants. He knows his roommates are a little weird, but he's just kind of moving through life. And Aretha is being pulled in 97 different directions. How do you balance that though? Because I feel like each of them is part of your POV and not just theirs. As well as other people who I talked to who also grew up working class, like I did when I lived in New York, there were packs of us. And I went to like Columbia Law School, which was just a deeply unstabilizing experience. <laughs> was working class. There were people who were so much more ambitious than I was. There were people who grew up rich. I went to school with like um, former Governor Pataki's daughter. I didn't know where I fit in that. And the people I gravitated to were also working class. We had a hard time figuring ourselves out in New York. There was so much more money, and we were aware of that. We struggled with that. We planned. We were ambitious. I, Aaron is the section of my, my friends, um, more so than me, who really knew what he was doing, who really had a plan for himself, who also got lucky and was able to control his career and end up in a place that he likes with the roaster and the brownstone. Aretha is a bit more like me, a bit more like my working class friends who did not quite figure it out. We very much knew what we wanted, but we didn't quite know how to get there. I feel like a lot of times when you're working class, you don't necessarily know how to advance in your career, who the right people are to be talking to, or you know how to get what you want. Did you know when you brought mom into the story that she was going to have to be that sort of lever? Yeah, I wanted Aretha to feel like they could be friends first because I feel like there aren't that many women in white shoe law firms. And I think there is at least an initial, could we work this out? It's a very competitive 
environment, we are fundamentally enemies. But is, is there a way? At the same time, you, it's really hard to do it. I know people who are friends with people who worked at other firms, but it's very, very tough to make friends within your own firm. You are going head to head for theoretically partner, if that's possible for you, which it may be. Right. Here we are in Brooklyn and we're talking about real estate. And here we are in Midtown talking about life at a corporate law firm. You have so many different ways of talking about ambition and class and how we represent those things, whether it's real estate or free time or owning your own business, all of these moments, right? But the first time I saw your byline and it really sort of snapped for me was when you did a piece for BuzzFeed. And this, I feel like you used a lot of this in the book. But you did a piece for BuzzFeed where you went to a gun show in Pennsylvania. You took a lot of photos and a lot of notes. And I sat with that story for a really long time because, one, I wanted to know if you were still safe because that felt like a really intense piece of journalism. And I remember people talking about it for a really long time because we're all like, wait a minute, who is this woman? What's she doing next? Where are we going from here? What's going on? So can we talk about how that piece came about? Because there's obviously there is a lot about guns in this book. I sort of came from growing up in a household of guns and not understanding why they were there and not having an inherent sympathy for that position. I don't like guns. Right. It had a little bit to do with a, a distant relative of mine who got in trouble for attempted murder. How did he get into like the gang lifestyle? Why was he running around with guns? We were all talking about this a lot as like an extended family and gnashing our teeth. And so I wanted to go see a little bit about the culture that I had rejected. And I, I don't even know why I got this idea in my head. I just felt very pulled towards it. I went out, I saw all those guns in the tables. In the first five minutes, I actually had a panic attack and went to the bathrooms. I was not ready for that. And the, the funny thing is, I know you mentioned, you know, was I safe? I am amazed because gun show people do not want you going in there and talking to their vendors and looking at their stuff. And they published all my photos of the gun show. And I'm not sure that photos of a gun show typically make it into journalism. But those folks have never tried to find me. I don't think they knew what BuzzFeed was. It was this real, in this part of the country, we read other things. We know other types of journalists. We don't know what you're doing thing. I got lucky. But um. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's the safest thing I ever did. I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm as a reader, I appreciate that you did it, but as a human being, I'm looking at this going, ooh, uh, okay. I mean, because here's the thing: in the context of the novel, the things that happen with guns make sense, and they, you need them not only to drive the story, but also to drive the connections between some of the characters. And yes, I'm being intentionally vague and. I did have a moment where, you know, early in the book, I was kind of like, okay, where are we going? Where are we going with this? Why can't I just hang out on the fringes with Aretha and Aaron? But obviously, you know, you had a plan for where this book was going. You had a total plan. And I couldn't put this book down. I really, really could not put this down. So you've got that perfect balance of narrative tension where you're pulling me through the story. But still, it took you 10 years to write this book? Am I remembering that correctly? 10 years total to get to a publishable book. I have three drawer books. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't 10 years for the survivalists. It was 10 years for I'm going to figure out how to write a novel. I've gone from essays and op-eds and humor pieces 
And now I have to sit down and write a thing that carries some weight and has a narrative arc and covers time in a way. Okay. I was wondering, because I was like, this is really assured. This is really like for a first not so knowing that you had three in a drawer. Can we talk about some of your literary influences though? Because I feel like I know some of them, but you have a great line. You did something recently for the millions, which is part of publishers weekly where you're talking about, you really like and appreciate dark stories. And I can see that in the survivalists, but I don't think that's the only influence in there. So can we talk about some of the writers and some of the books that made you who you are as a novelist? Sure. Um, Lately, I've been obsessed with S.A. Cosby, who definitely represents the dark side. I absolutely love his, his Black people in the South and the rural South. And how they feel abandoned by their their country, their community, everybody, and they they take on these solutions for their problems that are not the best ideas, but end up working for them. Um, I will tell everybody within like a ten foot radius about him. I've got his new book on pre order. I'm obsessed. But on the lighter end, I am obsessed with Gary Stenger, who I cannot believe is so 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 behind this book. I have read him since like 2008. <laughs> I love him for opposite reasons. I love him for, he, he loves talking about the American condition, but he's so mm-hmm. lighthearted and fun. I just laugh all the way through his books. Yeah, no, Absurdistan is one of my favorites, without a doubt. But what he did in Our Country Friends, I was like, wait, you know, because I've also been reading him for a very long time. And it's wild to see how it all comes together in the last book where I'm like, no one has ever figured out really how to write about tech and virtual reality and all of that stuff that so defines our lives in a lot of ways right now and yet not make it sound like not make it sound a little robotic like you never lose sight of the fact that your characters are people and like i said earlier in the show like britney i had some moments with britney where i was like okay okay but i still get her i like that's a hard hard thing to be able to pull off. I did laugh about the Pilgrim pudding because that just sounds disgusting. And I say that as someone who grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I don't know if you ever saw brown bread in a can, but oh, oh, I had some elderly relatives who thought it was the best thing. And literally you like take the ends off each end of the can and then you just push it through. And I can't. And then my dude discovers it one year we're in Massachusetts and he's like, he likes it. I was just like, well, luckily you can only get it in Massachusetts, so you'll never have it again. <laughs> but the Pilgrim Pudding, the Pilgrim Pudding thing, I was just like, oh, oh, yeah. I haven't had that specifically, but I know what that is. And, you know, part of the joy of reading The Survivalists, as much as I had some eye-opening moments, it's a really familiar terrain. You know, here we are in a Brooklyn that's really familiar, like... You know, we've got Aretha and her friend Nia eating breakfast and brunch. And, you know, they love their French toast the way I love French toast. So, yay, all of that. But it's it's a recognizable Brooklyn. It's a recognizable Midtown. Even if you don't work in a law firm, like if you've worked in an office, all of this is sort of... And then you sort of hit us with this punchline of Brittany and sort of how she's sort of pulled everyone else into her world. 
And Brittany doesn't particularly like people. No. <laughs> but she has this charisma, obvious. I mean, because clearly she's pulled everyone in. I don't think Aaron... I don't know. Is Aaron hapless? I don't think he's hapless. I think he's just delighted that he's got his coffee thing going and he doesn't have to worry. Am I right he about that? loves Brittany. He okay. has completely been sucked in by her. He's not hapless. She, she reminds him of some dark periods of his life sometimes because that both is a way that they've bonded. And I also think she's a bit controlling and it's a way she exercises control. But he's there because he wants to be there and he has a, a great deal of affection for her. The thing, too, about Brittany that got me, and the reason I asked that question about Aaron and whether or not he's hapless and, and hearing that, no, 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 he is really attached to Brittany, she's built a bunker in their backyard. Like, literally, a bunker. She has dug a bunker and learned how to weld from YouTube videos, because apparently you can do anything with a YouTube video. I, I, I do not doubt that Brittany learned how to weld on a YouTube video. Brittany's convinced herself she can do anything. The bunker leaks... She thinks she can run this physical, the physical plant for the house, let's call it that. Like, she just thinks, because she once did a thing once, I mean, she's got this very supreme confidence, which in some ways, I get. And in other ways, I'm like, oh, oh, that that can't be good. No, you kind of, wait, you just dug a giant hole in your backyard and added a door and walls. Wait, what? (laughs) Did you learn how to build a bunker? Is there a bunker somewhere? (laughs) I can't. I'm not that coordinated. I can't imagine building a bunker and just not having it fall in on itself. You know, back in the day when I used to smoke, I'd set my hair on fire. I like I should not be around welding to like I just don't need to set my hair on fire. That's really like I don't need to set my hair on fire. But when I was a kid, I desperately wanted to build a sod house in the backyard because I'd read on the banks of Plum Creek that Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I was like, I'm just going to go dig a house. And my mother's like, you will not. You will not go dig a house in the backyard. And I was like, but they did it in my book. No, no, you are not going to dig a house. In Wisconsin, sometimes people were handy. And so there was this real encouragement, like maybe you could build something. But I was the person in shop class where I ended up, I messed up with the industrial sander and sawed off my fingernail. Like that was... Ow. Yeah. Ow. We were trying to make candle holders and I just couldn't. And, the, and later the teacher brought me in the back. He's like, you can just have like one someone else made. You're not up for this. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of filter. <laughs> did you know that this was the form the book was going to take as you were writing? Or did you find that you had to like go back and sort of edit as you wrote? This could have been a really bleak book in some ways. I mean, we're talking about trauma. We're talking about control we're talking about like there's a lot happening class and and safety and all sorts of stuff i so appreciate the humor though i so so appreciate the humor and you have an eye for people <laughs> like are you just taking notes everywhere you go because i feel like you're taking notes every single person who's ever met you you have a note on them <laughs> but for you as a writer like how did you know when you had the voice for the survivalists I actually did a bleak draft. Like the first okay. draft was bleak, and I, but I, I was a, I had just stumbled into comedy writing, and I just oh, told okay. them it's not like it. <laughs> it wasn't what I was used to reading all day long at work. Not fit. 
And so I wanted to, I decided I wanted to liven it up and see if that works. And yeah, somewhere in there is where I hit the voice. It did need to be funnier. Well, it sounds a little cheesy to say it was such a pleasure to read, but it's such a pleasure to read. I just, to be able to have that release mechanism, right, where you can just laugh. And there's some stuff, like I mentioned earlier, there was some stuff I was laughing at and I was like, oh, I laughed at that. (laughs) Oh dear. But again, like if you're writing about, as you say, the American condition, like Steingart does it too, like you have to be able to laugh at this stuff because otherwise we're all just sitting on the floor in the fetal position. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, here you are, you were writing op-eds for the New York Times. I mean, folks can go find them. It's a lot of intense work that you were doing. You worked as an antitrust lawyer, which is not a small kind of lawyer. <laughs> that's, that's, how long did you do that? Five years. Okay, so how do you sit with where we are now, like, have we made any progress? Are we any better than we were in 15, 16? Do we, are we getting closer to having a clue or are we just never going to get there? I'm not sure, honestly. I, I kind of thought we were moving in more of a fascist direction, but then the election started tilting away from that. But the fascism is still there on the ground. It's hard to tell if the fa- it's going to win or not. I, it seems important to do the work, you know, if you're opposed to that sort of thing and beat it back. I actually feel like I write about the American condition effect, though, because I can't figure it out. Because I never know what people are thinking. Because we seem to change our minds all the time as a country. Yeah, we do. Oh, my God. Week to week, day to day. Yes. I mean, yes. I, I feel a little whiplashy right now. <laughs> But that's also being able to laugh at some of the stuff. I'm certainly not the first person to notice this, but when you can laugh at the horror, it's like, well, my life is still happening. Like, I'm I'm still like, I have to go to the grocery store and I have to like go to work or whatever that work is. You know, it's, I still have to live my life. And yet, if you think about some of this stuff too hard for too long, you can get a brain cramp. I have cramped my brain. There are times where, you know, especially if you're playing around on social media, it's like, oh, I really have to just put my phone down. I really just have to pick up a book instead because I can't. I can't. Do you miss these characters? Do you miss this particular world that you created in The Survivalist? Sometimes. I have 50-50 on that. Half, half the time it's nice to have a break from the bunker. Mm-hmm. And the other part of me could just listen to them argue forever. <laughs> no, I get it. I totally get it. I mean, I was eavesdropping the entire time I was reading the book. I mean, that is, I sort of feel like I was so deep in the world. And this is a world that I would have no connection with either. I mean, you took me in a whole new direction, my friend. You took me in a whole, whole new direction. Did anything surprise you when you were writing? I mean, you were really thoughtful and considered about the structure you wanted to use and the number of characters and, and what you wanted to touch on. But did anything surprise you? I think Aretha went a little farther in terms of being okay with certain levels of violence than I'd initially anticipated when I sat down to write it. Uh, and that shocked me. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I totally get it. Because I had a moment around the same point where I was like, oh, oh, we're here. Oh, <laughs> It totally works. I don't, I don't want to give anyone the idea that it, it takes you out of the story in any way, shape, or form, but I can see how that's not quite what you were thinking. Do you have a favorite character? I like Aretha a lot, 
but a lot of the times I'm surprised by this. I side with Brittany, actually. She's not somebody I'd want to hang out with, but she's a very specific person who feels different and fresh to me. And I, I like that about her. She feels very focused and very much a product of her time and her environment. And I do like, I had never met anyone like Brittany on the page before. And I was like, okay. You're slightly terrifying, but I will follow you. <laughs> and I do. I know I've said it a couple of times now, but I get her. I absolutely understand why she is the way she is. And there's a very clever thing that happens towards the end of the book where you connected two dots for me through another person. And uh, with Brittany, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Because that's who I thought it was. <laughs> okay. It was great. It was really satisfying. What are you hoping readers take away from the survivalists? Because there's a lot here. I would ask them to look at the role of fear in their lives and to ask, you know, is, is this good fear? Is this useful fear? You know, I, I realize you can't intellectualize fear all the time. It's also a visceral feeling, but you know, is this fear controlling my life? Is this fear who I am and who I want to be? All right. So you've been writing for television for a while now, and you're still writing for television, but how do you fit in novel writing around that? Because honestly, I would like to see more, please. Can we talk about what you're working on next? I am doing Hollywood stuff I can't talk about. <laughs> but novel-wise, is there another novel coming? I know the Hollywood stuff you can't talk about, and I totally respect that. But novels, do we have more novels coming? Do we have yes, maybe a short I, story? <laughs> Anything? I'm wrestling in, with uh, a novel that's in the early stages of things. It's too unbaked to really talk about talk about. But it concerns the American condition. I hope that people consider it to be funny. I guess I feel like I have certain themes and, you know, I hit some of them again in a different way. Which would be awesome. Are we going to go back to Wisconsin? Because, I mean, there's a little bit, a tiny bit of Wisconsin in this book. I'm just thinking of Sarah Thencom Matthews and all this could be different. And I really loved the way Milwaukee appears in that book. Because Milwaukee is not a place I know. And I just, I would like to see more Wisconsin. Maybe we will definitely go back to Wisconsin at points. I mean, I lived there for 23 years. Okay. <laughs> awesome. I mean, listen, I appreciate a good New York story. Don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, I would like to hear more about Wisconsin. And I would like to see what you cook up in Wisconsin as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kashana Kali, the survivalist is out now. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Matthew Celestis is the author of a new novel called The Sense of Wonder. And it's just out. And I'm going to ask Matt to explain where the title comes from. And this will give you a little background for where we're going in this conversation. <laughs> Matthew, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The title comes from, uh, it's a kind of pun on the name of the main character, whose name is Juan. He has a sort of Jeremy Lin type seven game winning streak and during that winning streak they call it the wander the sort of like they call insanity right but the book is also really about wonder in general and and something i think is really important for fiction and something that fiction can do for us that it doesn't always do but i actually actually spent like a whole year reading these middle grade novels from my youth over again because i used to read a book as a kid and, and be totally lost in the book um, and really like visualize what I was reading. 
And my parents would say later, like, we asked you to do like these 10 things. You did right. none of them. And I, <laughs> I hadn't even heard them. Right. Right. And so I wanted to see if it was like the books or if it was just getting old, but it, it actually was the books. I, I found there's just so much more wonder sometimes in those books for young readers. Um, and I wanted to try to get some of that into an adult novel. Right. So what were some of those books? Uh, so A Wrinkle in Times, an old favorite and uh, really held up pretty well. The Darkest Rising series was a, a big favorite of mine as a kid. And then I was also reading some of the newer books, uh, children's books, uh, The Apothecary. Miley Malloy is a favorite uh, adult author of mine, and she went to write a bunch of young young reader books, and those are all really amazing, too. You know, there's this new documentary, which you and I were talking about before we hit record, 38 at the Garden, which is, you know, the game, the game that put Jeremy Lin on the map. And I remember Lin's sanity, but I also had forgotten how sort of quickly it burned. And I, for some reason, I had thought it was a couple of years. And I, I don't know <laughs> if this is, I don't know if this is post-pandemic brain because my sense of time is a little squirrely, but also it was 2012. I mean, it wasn't yesterday, but I just, I remember what it felt like to be in New York and be part of the community and see everyone losing their mind over this kid from Palo Alto. <laughs> yeah. And watching 38 at the Garden again, because I obviously I rewatched it before you and I sat down, just the joy and yeah, the wonder, right. the wonder of watching that guy play and watching people's responses and seeing like the crowds just lose their minds. It was so much fun. And I want to make it clear, obviously, this is slightly inspired by this is not any kind of auto. This is not auto fiction for anyone. This is just <laughs> you telling a story. <laughs> yeah. So Wan Lee has made it to the next. And yeah, there are slight parallels, obviously, to how he gets there and why he's there. But you throw in a guy called Robert Sung, who is a sports reporter, who has a little bit of history with one of the other players on the Knicks at the time. And I like this sort of balance. So can we talk about Robert for a second? Because Juan, he's he's going to run a lot more of this conversation, but I want to bring Robert in sort of early because he's an interesting cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he has been in the role that Juan is in now, which is, you know, like in high school, uh, the, the kind of Carmel Anthony type player of the Knicks, the star player of the Knicks, who's changed his name in my own joke, to Powerball with an exclamation point. He used to be the star of a high school team, and the point guard of that high school team was another Asian-American basketball player, and that's Robert Sung. Um, Robert Sung kind of, he broke his knee coming down from a layup and landing on Powerball's foot, right? And But instead of kind of resenting him or maybe also resenting him, he's decided to make a career out of writing about Powerball. So he became a sports writer, and is the beat writer for the next. Yeah, and he's not an accountant. He's not a consultant. He's not a no. dentist. He's a sports writer, which, you know, we're seeing more of us doing that kind of thing. But at the time, you know, this would have been sort of a new and novel thing. And then there's Juan's girlfriend, Carrie Kang, who's quite a great character. And yet this isn't just a novel about sports and celebrity. We have no. to talk about K-drama for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's about love. I'm... I actually wanted to call it Love and Basketball. but Okay. <laughs> There's a movie called Love and Basketball. Yeah, I know. It of... ruined it for me. They stole my title. Oh, <laughs> you know, titles can't be copyrighted. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> titles can't be copyrighted. Okay, but let's talk about Carrie and let's talk about her meet cute 
with Juan. It's a nice moment, but let's set them up because Robert's going to come back. So Carrie is a producer of uh, K-drama currently, but you're kind of a producer in general. Her dream is to bring K-drama to America and kind of make a Korean-American K-drama, which her bosses think is a stupid idea, but I would love to see personally. Yeah, so she goes to this movie to, um, you know, an Asian-American movie. Everybody in New York is probably going to these premieres to support um, Asian-American representation. She kind of hates the movie, but because it's her job to look for new talent, she goes up to talk to uh, the star of the movie, who is one of one's friends from Princeton. And his friend is not the greatest of people. Uh, and kind of is getting uh, into a little bit of a tiff. He kind of pisses Carrie off, and Carrie throws her drink at him, and Juan slides in to take the charge uh, and gets the, you know, drink all over his face. (laughs) But it sets them off on a really interesting love story because she's not particularly ready to settle down, and she's got some ideas about relationships that I think Juan is not prepared for, which, you know, that I think we're going to let readers discover on their own specifically. But they're kind of pretty equally matched, even though he's sort of the fancy celebrity, because let's face it, he's not LeBron. He's not Kobe. He's not Carmelo Anthony. He's a guy on the bench. Yes. Yeah. He's at the end of the bench and hasn't been playing at all, despite, mm-hmm. you know, constantly having to prove himself over and over again. Okay, so when did you start the novel that became The Sense of Wonder? Because I heard you wrote this in two parts. I did. So I wrote one's part uh, starting in 2015. Lindsay's still very fresh in my mind. Like you, that was a huge moment for me. I, I kind of joke about how it was the best I've ever felt about America, but that's also true. Like it, it was the best I've ever felt about America. And that sense of wonder is this sense, right, that like possibilities are open to us i really felt at the time you know it seemed like the doors were being flung open and then they were kind of slammed in our face afterwards but i'll just remember the good the good two weeks that we had there and then i wrote the second half while my wife was undergoing chemo treatments she had stage four stomach cancer she found out she had it right after giving birth to our second child she went to korea for treatment and um i you know, went up and down from Busan, she lives in Busan, and to Seoul for for the treatments and kind of was writing the second half of the book by her bedside during these long chemo bouts where she just in a, you know, kind of sleeping off a lot of pain. Um, and I was kind of in this hot room with a bunch of other chemo patients, um, unable to really speak Korean well enough to know what was going on and writing about trying to live and hoping to live in a place where death was kind of all around us. Yeah, I know you said earlier in this episode that this is a novel about love, but it's also a novel about choosing to live and live on your own terms. And that's every single character. That's Robert Sung, too, who makes a couple of decisions that I was like, okay, dude, okay, I see where you're going. (laughs) I'm going to see where this goes. But it's really interesting to me that you sort of let everyone have their very not necessarily predictable response to the world around them. And part of why I'm bringing that up and part of why I phrased it that way is you have a very excellent craft book called Craft in the Real World that came out last year. And one of the opening lines 
is craft is a set of expectations. And I think for some listeners, that might be a novel idea. So I want to go there for a second. And I want to talk about this idea of craft, the writer's art being a way of wrestling with bigger ideas through your characters, through story, through plot. But let's put this in context for a second, because I think these two things are, I don't think you can separate them at all. Yeah, no, the obviously, you know, the book is very much about expectations for somebody and how they um, kind of set the parameters of what we think is possible for them. Um, in the Craft in the Real World is a book about, uh, well, about trying to like pare back the things we talk about when we talk about craft and thinking about what actually is craft, right? And I think when you come down to it, what we're doing is uh, readers are reading all of these books and forming ideas from those stories about what a story should be and what makes a story satisfying or pleasurable or moving. And then we kind of put those moves or that kind of machinery into work as writers in order to create a story that is also moving or powerful in that way. Um, but of course, what we're doing right then is kind of hacking into the expectations that we've seen or taken from books and using those same, trying to work on those same expectations that readers have. This is all fine. I think it's actually really useful and helpful. And when you're at, when you're sitting down to write a story, uh, but it also means sometimes we don't think enough, I think, about how power enters into the equation and what makes something uh, an expectation, why we've read, you know, why we have a kind of canon or whatever of books that we think are the things that make a good story um, and what happens when we want to write something different from that. So when you sat down to write Sense of Wonder and start Sense of Wonder, did you, is that the point that you started or did you just have Juan's voice in your head and thought, mm, I should see where this goes? <laughs> I don't, I don't really believe in the voice in your head thing. Okay. <laughs> I know a lot Fair of writers do, but it, I actually think, you know, we are making these decisions. I mean, like, so craft in the real world is all about like how we make decisions all the time on the page, right? We're constantly ch choosing whether we think of it or not, every single word and every single, the order in which those words appear, right? And how each of those single choices can be, you know, changed at any time. Uh, which is the great, my dad used to say, right? It's not, it's not horseshoes or golf or something, right? You can't be close, but actually in fiction, it is, you know, even more so than that, right? Change it any, at, at all times. I've been kind of thinking through the ideas and in, in craft in the real world for a long time and teaching them and trying to become a better teacher. I mean, a lot of the started both with my last novel, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. Mm -hmm. I started uh, maybe in 2011, 2012, so right around insanity, um, and was also trying to work through my ideas of who the and what I wanted fiction to be able to do, why it wasn't, you know, turning into a kind of typical Western Bildungsroman or something. And those ideas still, of course, get into the sense of wonder. But in a way, I always think when I'm teaching creative writing, like, oh, we're just teaching life, right? We're teaching the you know, fact that there are stories all around us, there are expectations for who we are all around us, and they're constantly informing what people will allow us to be and whether or not we can kind of mold ourselves to that or break those molds 
um, or come up with more molds, which is, you know, the whole kind of impetus for more representation. And Lynn was a huge moment for that, I think, in Asian American history, especially, you know, personally was a huge mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and so that all kind of got into the book for sure. All right. So expectations, as you say, belong to an audience. And you mentioned this just a second ago, but you said you were thinking about the audience as you sat down to write. So was that the audience that you finished writing the book for? Or did the audience shift as you were writing? This one did not, but definitely for the last novel, my audience shifted a lot. I was trying to write a detective story, a kind of thriller about somebody trying to figure out who had murdered another version of them, a doppelganger of them. And um, by the end of it, it turned into a very kind of literary novel about Asian American history and disappearance. And so the audience really shifted quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But with the sense of wonder, I I kind of knew right away uh, with each part, the audiences that I was tapping into, this kind of like people who really were moved by insanity, you know, who like sports and for me, I often think, oh, sports, it's like the last frontier for Asian right. Americans, right? Like, unless it's women's figure skating, it's golf. hard to, to kind of break. Think golf we do, okay. Golf, yeah, golf. You know, a lot of those are... I don't like, watch Asian golf, Asian. so I don't know, but I, I, <laughs> I knew a lot of folks who played golf in college, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah. I have to admit that, you know, whacking balls at a driving range is pretty satisfying. When you hear that noise Definitely. and you're like, oh, yeah, that's going to go for a while. But was I ever? No. <laughs> you have it right. I played golf a lot when I was in high school. And right. It's, it is a good feeling when you know you have it right. The problem is, like, that's uh, not exactly a very common experience when you're golfing. No. Like, I, I, golf. Mostly you know you have it wrong. I, I can count on one hand and have fingers left over the times I've heard that noise. At a driving range, and it's just like, you know, this is just not my game. I think this is really just not my game. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's a perfectionist game. Let's go back to basketball for a second, because, I mean, the life of, let's say, a player who's not even the sixth man, it's not all that glamorous. It's not all that fancy. And then on top of it, like Jeremy Lin Juan has the security guy saying, who are you? Why are you here? This is ridiculous. So once again, we're sort of facing this little bit of invisibility. Yeah, it's like a microcosm of like the Asian American experience, right? It's like you're on the team, Mm -hmm. you made it in a way, but you're not really playing. And when you show up to play, people are like, you don't belong here. So there's, there's something about that I think that you can pretty well relate to if you've you know, been asked, for example, like, where are you from? You know, where are you really from? Which is the question people are always asking, you know, you know, one in the book in a way, right? I think all of that kind of helps, you know, me think about like, how am I writing this book for people who really love sports, but also for people, right, Asian Americans who are tapping into this kind of experience that Lynn also kind of was tapping into. Um, And then the other half of the book, right, is I'm, I really think for me, I mean, on some level, I thought when I was writing the book, oh, let me just write about these two things that I pretend are research all the time, but that are actually just me doing things that I think are fun. And now I can make them into research, right? Like I, at the time, I was watching a lot of K-drama at the time and thinking, oh, here's how stories work. And I would say, oh, this is for research. And my wife would say, you're not researching, you're 
just watching TV. I'd be like, no, no, it's research. It's research. <laughs> right. Um, but then, so I thought, you know, this is a way to legitimize my research. Right, right. Um, but also to tap into this whole thing. I mean, when I started writing the book, K-dramas were watched by Koreans and like maybe some other kind of the Asian diaspora, right? Now look at that. I think that kind of really speaks to right, our kind of need for these love stories, but also the idea that for me, I think a, a K-drama is a really close form to the novel, maybe the closest yeah. screen form to the novel. Because you do actually create a show. Two. And yeah, two, within the context of The Sense of Wonder, both of which I would totally watch, even though I'm not a huge K-drama person, only for lack of time. That's literally, if I could watch everything I wanted to watch and read everything I wanted to read, I would be a very satisfied person. Except I need a 36-hour day in order to be able to do that. I just, no. I can't do everything. So unfortunately, K-drama has not become a regular part of my media diet. But I do want to talk about it because there are a huge number of fans. But also, it sounds really great from the way you talk about it in the book. It's so great. I, You know, I, at this point, I'm basically watching almost exclusively K-drama. Um, and I do actually get a lot out of it mm -hmm. as a novelist. Uh, so K-dramas are, you know, kind of traditionally sort of 16 or 20 episode now there may be eight and 12 episode drama shows sort of like mini hbo mini series right mm -hmm. they have a clear beginning and a clear ending and there's none of the kind of like how do we milk this for extra seasons thing going on in american tv so the whole story is very directed toward its ending um, and it hits certain points that's like a film would hit in two hours, but over, you know, 16 hours. Um, and I find that very satisfying and a lot closer to like the 10 hours or so it takes to read a novel. And so you've got this kind of like often a three X structure where in the first four episodes of a 16 episode K-drama, people are kind of meeting and getting interested in each other. And then you've got four more episodes where they're kind of really like falling in love. You know, by episode eight or nine, I used to ruin these for my wife all the time. Like, she'd be like, oh, they just kissed. And I'd be like, oh, is it episode eight or is it episode nine? <laughs> this is how it used to be all the time, right? So the kind of consummation and the high point of their love, uh, which in a K-drama is a kiss at the, in the middle there. And then you've got some kind of outside drama uh, problem. Often the parents will step in and say you can't marry my son slash daughter right and then um we'll have four episodes of trying to solve you know real world problems because the love has to be able to stand up to the world right um and then you'll have a kind of like a, a climax there and around episode 12 uh and then after that there's an even bigger there's like the the problem of time almost and i actually heard from somebody uh a few years ago that the that this is like a product of censors, that the censors wanted the shows to not represent a sort of love that would be, you know, temporary and kind of fleeting and uh, just in the moment. And so in order to pass the censors, they had to skip time, right? So there will often be this kind of like, oh, somebody goes abroad for a year or two, they come back, and they have to kind of prove that their love is still real, is still, you know, like re is a real love. And so you'll kind of have this ending where it feels not like a, you know, sometimes I feel like at the end of a romantic comedy, and then they break up, 
<laughs> like that's probably what's going to happen after this movie is over. But in a K drama, you see, oh, it's it's years on, and they're still they're still pining after each other. Wait, so are there multiple seasons, or is it just a constant sort of stream of miniseries kind of stuff? Yeah, so there are sometimes, but very rarely, multiple seasons. But they're they're not usually planned. You know, occasionally, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's just a kind of new. You get a new story shot, right? You get a new show with new actors new writers um which also is really amazing i think in some ways it's more protective of your time really because you don't have to kind of invest in something that never ends or will end once people stop being invested in it right you get the whole full story and you once you're done with it you're done with it did you take anything from k-drama just any of the structure any of the ideas behind it to use for your characters in yeah, sense of wonder. And I'm and I'm talking separately from the two dramas that you write in the book, because those are obvious examples. But I sort of feel like there's more going on here when I think about sort of the relationship between Juan and Carrie. And then also Robert is extracting himself from a not great marriage. And he's wildly in love with someone else's wife who's wildly <laughs> in love with him. And there's complications there. And we're going to we're going to sort of sidestep because it's a little spoiler to get too into that piece of the conversation. But again, there's a lot of sort of this, there's sort of an old fashioned sense to a lot of these relationships. And yet at the same time, they're all very modern and very messy. But (laughs) yeah, I just sort of feel like there's a little more K-drama happening in this novel than people might notice immediately. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so the K, even the K-dramas that I've written in um, serve as a sort of context for how to understand the novel. And I, I think, you know, like this, the novel starts with this quote about expectations, right? It's, it's um, there's no frame of reference for him, which is what people would say about Jeremy Lin and why, why do you come out of nowhere? Well, they would say there's no frame of reference for him. We didn't see anybody else who's successful as an Asian American basketball player. So we didn't think he could be successful as an Asian American basketball player. In the book too, you know, I, I wanted to kind of write a different kind of book, but I also wanted to give some kind of context to how to read that book as well and the k-dramas help to do that but you know the meet cute is straight out of a k-drama i think it's this kind of like very typical situation you know after he's doused with the drink um carrie helps kind of pat it off of him and they have a little flirtation um and they start talking to each other at least um and there are points kind of as the book goes on as well that mirror the similar kind of structure as a k-drama um, and then there are the K-dramas within the book, which also help to kind of explain how these things are working. And then something else I really like about K-drama is a lot of them are based around fate as the driving force of things, right? And they're, they're often like, you could watch 10 K-dramas and probably three of them will be like, in a past life, these people were together and now they're like reliving exactly the same life here uh, in the present. Um, but, you know, facing the same kinds of problems and will they be able to actually like make that tiny breakthrough that changes their fate? That seems like a pretty true feeling to how I've lived. I mean, as an adoptee too, right? Taken right. If you put just completely into another life you know, outside of my choice, um, I've kind of lived an entire life according to the whims of some other force. Um, and coincidence and fate are big things in the novel. Um movers and shakers in the novel and i wanted that to be the case because i i do think like sometimes we 
that kind of experience is left out of a novel and in favor of a kind of like very privileged sense of agency where we think we can change everything according to our own desires. Okay. So building off of what you just said and something you said earlier about how you make choices when you're creating your fiction, is there any moment where you get to be surprised by what you're doing on the page or your characters surprise you, or do you get to have a sense of wonder as you're writing something like (laughs) the sense of wonder? (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I think the whole process is like a sense of wonder in in Mm -hmm. a way. It's that there are so many possibilities, right? Right. You're kind of picking and choosing between them and often you're making the wrong decision or making a decision on the way to another decision. And you you're kind of tapping into the like one of the things I do as a professor is is to look at a student's manuscript and try to identify what possibilities they're opening up without them knowing even. Often, you know, they've kind of just written this thing. They're not really thinking about what's there that as, you know, or they're they're thinking about it, but haven't seen all the things that are there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. just kind of going through and saying, look, this is like this line here could lead to this whole other romance, right? And you can kind of take it there or not take it there. And that's where the choice comes in. But the whole kind of process of drafting and revising and drafting and revising, thats that to me is a process of possibility for sure. So related to that, you teach and you've taught for a really long time. I mean, you've been writing and teaching since college, essentially. I mean, since you left college and you've taught at the graduate level for a really long time. What have you learned from your students? What did you learn from writing a craft book? Because, I mean, sitting down and doing the actual writing and editing of a craft book, actually, it demands a little attention that you don't necessarily get to put into it unless you sit down to write a book. So <laughs> let's talk about outside influences on you, like the people and the even some of the books. I mean, you talked about A Wrinkle in Time, but like, who are some of the writers who helped make Matthew Celestis the writer that we know? <laughs> like, I have so many questions about how did you get here? Oh, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I have these kind of like pet theories about how people become writers. And okay. Sometimes I think it's like the feeling of choice that we have on the page. A lot of people who become writers often feel like they don't have those opportunities in their real life. Um, and that's how I felt often as a kid. Like, who gets to tell my story? Every time I really got to do it, it was on the page. So, you know, that kind of like exclusion or like living in somebody else's story of you, that's a feeling I, I had as a child. But then reading for me was often the similar experience of like reading these stories that felt like they were for me, but were obviously not for me, right? These kind of kids you know, around my age with, you know, like the same kind of outsiderness, um, wanting to be, you know, the, at the center of their own world. And yet the worlds that they've stepped into, you know, were worlds kind of made for British white kids often, or, you know, sometimes like New England or white kids with the usually a pretty good amount of money and, you know, or during the war or something, things that I really had not experienced. And, couldn't relate to it in any way. Not that it would make anybody a writer, but for me, it probably helped me to try to figure out how to write a story that would be more like my experience, but also kind of tap into that that same sense of wonder. As a teacher, I learned a, so much. I mean, all this stuff from Craft in the Real World is stuff that I wrote on various websites about teaching and about craft while I was teaching, right? 
he graduated from my MFA and I stepped into the classroom trying to do the same things I'd gotten in my MFA. And I immediately found the things that I thought were kind of problematic, possibly as a student, were extremely problematic right. when I was one charge, right? I was right. like, oh, okay. Now that I'm responsible for these problems, right? Like I can't kind of keep letting them happen. Uh, so I had to kind of figure out a way to do it differently. And I, I spent a long time just trying to figure that out, asking other people, you know, doing it on my own, experimenting in the classroom and the students. There's a lot of it came from just trying to like honor a student's intentions, you know, connect to students' work, give them the best possible workshop experience that they could have. Um, and especially for students who are writing things that were very different in workshop. How could I do that? And so trying to tailor the workshops toward the individual students and individual stories, um, you know, led me into also thinking about like my own writing as a thing that was, could stand on its own. And what was the history behind it? What kind of books was it in conversation with? Um, and when I think about that question, you know, as far as influences go, uh, I taught Asian American literature for a long time, um, Asian American studies. And I, I think of my books always kind of within that the conversation that people are having within Asian American literature mm -hmm. um, and this kind of like the literature of resistance the literature on the margins here literature of hybridity you know right you know so I'm assuming Gish Jen Maxine Hong Kingston maybe Frank Chin I don't know were you teaching La Sonata <laughs> like who's on that syllabus yeah, I've read all of those. Uh, Maxine and Kingston, I always start with The Warrior. Right. Um, I've now read this and, count and taught it countless times. Right. Every time I learn something new from that book. Um, no, I, you know, I, I like her other books as well. You know, I learned a lot from No-No Boy, especially as a student. Oh, yeah, John Okada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great yeah. one. America's in the Horror, Colossus mm -hmm. Wilson. Mm -hmm. Then kind of like Dog Eaters, uh, yep. right? like I Hotel. Um, and then more kind of modern things. I've been taught a couple of times. I taught Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, okay. at the same time as um, kind of put it in conversation with um, with the Kingston. You know, so like I'm reading also with my kids, trying to read them, Asian American authors, and then I'm seeing these things, these right that are going on there. I think are interesting, and sometimes I want to sneak those in. You know, I was thinking <laughs> the Asian American Hulk or the Asian, you know, the yep. superhero, right? Superman, written by Gene Yang, or um, American-born Chinese, of course. It is coming to the screen as an adaptation, and I'm really excited for a whole new generation of sort of you yeah. know adolescents and young adults to discover this book. Um, in case you don't know, we're talking about American-born Chinese, which is a graphic novel by Jin Luen, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty it, cool. It seems like it'd be a great show. I can't wait. Yeah, no, so I think that's coming. I mean, you teach, you've got kids, you've got all these things going on. Do you ever get to just read for you? <laughs> well, I've been reading for, you know, awards and stuff, but also reading for me. I've, I've been actually reading my way or kind of listening my way through Alice Munro's oeuvre. yeah. Oh, I, wow. I, I love Monroe, but I kind of had in the past cherry picked, read her selected, and then like read yeah. individual collections or individual stories in the New Yorker or whatever. And reading them all in a row is, is, is really interesting. I mean, are you reading them chronologically? Like, are you reading them as they landed in the world? Because that. Yeah, I'm reading them. Well, I'm listening to them chronologically. Okay, but still, I. Really <laughs> 
I mean, I'm not one of those people who's going to tell you you're not reading an audio, but whatever. I mean, however you consume literature, I think it's kind of great. Like the idea of having the time to sit down and listen to Alice Munro straight through. <laughs> My eyes are getting really big. I'm getting very excited <laughs> about this idea. Taking a long idea. time. I mean, and she wrote a lot yeah, of Well, and that's the thing. And I'm like, ooh, I don't. And I love short stories. I really do. But at the same time, like a body of work like that, I don't even know. Like I'm mentally scanning my one of my bookshelves at home, thinking, "How much Monroe is there?" I don't, maybe a not. There's a lot, but <laughs> and those stories are know. long. Right? They're like really. Yeah, meaty, no, it's it's stories. she's the bomb. She's absolutely. I'm so jealous of you listening to those. Now. <laughs> you too can do it. <laughs> I can. The question is, how do I sneak it in with all? Of, you know, yeah, that's why I have to listen to it because, right, like uh, I'm just kind of taking my kids to school or whatever, cleaning up around the house and listening. Yeah, to I, the things that we do to consume literature is pretty great. I mean, I feel yeah. really, I do similarly I, when I'm walking to work. Um, I'll listen to a million different things just because, yeah, it's the same thing. It's you only have so much time and yeah. I want to read everything. <laughs> I really yeah. do. So what's next for you? So next is a memoir and essays mm. is what we're calling it right now. Okay. Um, so various essays I've written over the years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of surrounding my relationship with my wife up to her death and grieving right. her. Um, right. but also about, you know, the state of Asian America, Asian American masculinity, parenting, and this kind of weird world that we've created for ourselves. That's what I'm working on right now. It's it's also with Little Brown, mm-hmm. supposedly coming out next year, now that we're in 2023, next year. Uh, yeah, okay, we have to <laughs> slow down for two seconds because I, I was looking at my calendar this morning and thinking, huh, that's a really interesting number, 23. <laughs> hmm? <laughs> and I knew it was coming, and I have every January I sort of stare and think, okay, this is okay. All right, here we are. It takes me a long time to start writing the correct year. I'm always uh, writing one. There is a spreadsheet that I had to go back and fix because uh, someone may not have been paying attention as she was doing a lot of entry and <clears throat> not correctly looking at dates, but you know, this is what happens. Anyway, <laughs> we're in the year of Michael Jordan. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> we're in the year of Michael Jordan, which really apropos if you think about it. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The Sense of Wonder is out now. Craft in the Real World is out now. And really, just go check out both of them. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. It was. It really made my day. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top-Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to go with today's Double Shot episode featuring two fantastic authors. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Leawood, Kansas. So um, since we're doing two different authors today, I think, Jamie, I'm going to have you go first and recommend a title to go along with The Sense of Wonder. Recommend another brilliantly structured meta-fictional novel um, for fans of Sense of Wonder, and that's Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Uh, This book is presented in a screenplay, a unique screenplay format, uh, and it's tricky stuff to pull off. Um, He plays with point of view. He plays with tenses. It's multi-layered. Like I said, it's metafictional and self-referential. It's hilarious. 
and also poignant. So he really does it all in this book. And it was a well-deserved winner of the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. Uh, you was a writer on Westworld, the TV show Westworld. So he definitely knows his way around a screenplay and has that Hollywood experience. Uh, this one is uh, ostensibly a script about a police procedural television show where our protagonist, Willis Wu, has been cast as generic Asian man, um, but he has hopes to be Kung Fu guy one day. Uh, and the truth is, it seems like in his real life, he's also relegated to these same stereotypical roles. Um, and the story is told in such a way that it actually literally blurs the line between the role that Willis is playing on the show and his real life with the point of view kind of seamlessly moving back and forth, even in the same paragraph um, between these two settings. Uh, I love novels that play with conventional structure, and this one is just a really fantastic example of that. Um, it is done meticulously well, and it is breathtaking. Uh, while I was reading it, I was just wowed. Um, and I think part of what he does so well is that he takes this cool structure, does all of these really interesting things with it, um, but is also able to focus on the human element of the story, um, which is the disillusionment that um, Willis is feeling in his real life, you know, as an outcast and the scope of the obstacles that have sort of been placed between him and the American dream. While all of that is amazing feat, the story is, is actually, it has a ton of heart. It's really poignant. There's a great cast of characters in Willis's life in Chinatown and um, people who have their own kind of hopes and dreams pinned to him. Um, it all adds up to a really entertaining story um, about discrimination, about opportunity, about pop culture, uh, and how the, sometimes stereotypes can bleed into real life. This is an A-plus book for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Interior Chinatown is fantastic. Deserves all the accolades. Uh, fantastic pick. No surprise there. Um, so I'm going to talk about a recommendation that I chose to go along with The Survivalists. And this is another uh, award winner. This won the Booker Prize not too long ago. And it is The Sellout by Paul Beatty. Ooh, this book. Uh, it is deliciously bitter satire. It is social commentary. It is a study on race. It is both an island and a beacon of a novel. Uh, I have never read anything like this before. Uh, it follows a man named Bonbon, bon, who, for reasons grounded and bizarre, and through means mildly grounded and mostly bizarre, uh, is trying to bring his L.A. neighborhood back into prominence. What follows is a story that skewers nearly every stereotype. It annihilates pretty much every absurd attempt at historical whitewashing. It punctures a reader's self-image and look at race in America. Uh, it is wild. It is an uncomfortable read. It is a hilarious read. It is a groundbreaking read. Um, and it's essential. I've really not read a book that's shifted my axis so much uh, in a very long time uh, until this novel. And I think that it's one of those books that you seek sort of floating around in the ether of like, oh, you should probably read this one. It's got, it's got the accolades. You know, give it a whirl. Just do it. It is a book that will shift things for you uh, in a way that will make you laugh out loud and then you will feel horrible for doing so. 
but in a really great way. Uh, it's 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 a wonder. Uh, so please check out the sellout by Paul Baby. Yay! Great pick. Fantastic. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Both have great picks. Always. Two good uh, ones. Yes. Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. Have a wonderful day and happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.